every day I would just study film because my coach mm. is right. I'm not going to be the biggest, fastest, and strongest, but I right. can be the smartest. Mm. So what would happen is we would get in games, and typically, you know, a quarterback is the only person who can call an audible. Right. Well, I'm a running back. And I remember I would be like, Todd, Todd, 22 guys, you know. Right. I'd be calling out plays. And then he would make audibles. Uh-huh. And then my coach gave me the green light to make audibles. He's like, Sly, you know what's going on. How, <laughs> how do you know what's going on? It's because uh-huh. well, I study. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm committed to this. Because you, you told me I can't be the biggest, fastest, or strongest. Right. But you didn't tell me I couldn't right. be the smartest. Mm-hmm. So I always knew, like, even when I was playing sports, like, I had an intellectual edge. You know, I always knew that that was my edge. Like, sports was just a vessel for me. Mm-hmm. It was just a safe haven for me to release all the negative energy right. that was brewing inside of me. We are here with Sylvester McNutt, the third. The third. The third. That is, you got to say that properly. That's though, official. <laughs> that is official. How you third. doing, man? Third. Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing good. <laughs> Glad to have you here. You flew in on a rainy day from Phoenix, man. Yeah, I was hoping to bring the sunshine with me, uh-huh. but um, I failed. So. <laughs> yeah, yes, you did. <laughs> you know what? It hadn't rained that much. Well, so know, it's, it's been beautiful it's been until nice. he got here. Something, something's here up tonight. with that, man. <laughs> That's the Chicago you brought. That's yeah. what I brought. That's, That's, brought. Brought. That's what you I brought. brought. That Chicago. That, yeah. that, we don't want to bring that. <laughs> we want to bring the Phoenix. We don't want yeah. to bring the Chicago. Yeah, we are excited <laughs> to have you, man. We're excited to get into your story. That's what we do here. We tell stories. Uh, we like to tell people we're, we're taking conversation back to the campfire yeah. is what we're doing I love here. That. So love, love, like I said, we're excited to hear your story. You're an author, you're a podcaster, you're a speaker, you're a wellness mm-hmm. educator. You do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what I'm fascinated by, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, I get it. Darren has a following because of, you know, sports and the things he's done in the community. And it's easy to understand why Darren has a following. For people like you, I'm fascinated by because there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that you impact and that you lead, and you seemingly came out of nowhere to do that. And so what I'm fascinated to learn is how did you do that? How did you, what message are you spreading to people? What encouragement are you giving people that makes so many interested in what you're saying? So that's what we're going to dive in today. We're so excited that you're here, uh, and I know the people are going to be, be glad to hear this as well. So let's start with where you're from, where you were born, what family life was like. Let's, let's set the foundation there. Okay. Had a beautiful family life at the very beginning. That is what I find most interesting is the family system I came into was mom and dad. It was a lot of love. I remember fishing with my dad. I remember painting with my mom, singing with her. You know, I remember playing cards with my mother and father. Mm-hmm. I remember wrestling with my dad, fighting with them, running. We used to run up and down the street. And I swear I could beat him every time. And then obviously he would end. He right. would, as soon as we would end, he would finish right, right before me. Yeah. You know, I remember playing basketball with my dad. I remember being so pissed off when I was a kid because he would take me to the park and we would fly the kites. Mm-hmm. And you would have to get, like, the perfect wind. And you would have to have the, the right amount of distance from the string. And I could never do it. And he'd just throw it up and then he would just fly it perfectly. And I remember just begging him to teach me, like, how do you get this kite to be so perfect? And he's just like, it's science, son. You know, he, you know how dads are so smooth. He, he's like, it's science, son. You just got to do it like that, you know. And so I had the perfect upbringing. Um, I, was on, I was the only child. So I got all the attention. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. I got all the attention. And as far as I can remember, it was a healthy family system. I remember seeing my mother and father flirt. I remember seeing them hold mm. hands. Right. You know, I remember seeing them being oh. affectionate, <laughs> touching, talking. 
But in my story, what happened was there was a drastic turn that happened around around the age of six to eight. Mm-hmm. Now, to this day, I don't I don't know exactly what happened in their story, in my parents' mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. But I felt the change in the energy. I felt it. And so what ended up happening is when I, when I got to be about 9 or 10, that's when I really saw what was going on because everything had changed. Now there was violence in my home. It was abuse, and it was going both ways between mother and father. Now there was a lot of drinking. They both were drinking, whereas before I don't remember seeing that. Mm-hmm. Now I, actually, I physically see them drinking bottles and bottles of alcohol where my dad would come home and not even speak to us, not even say hello to us. And I have a younger brother and sister at this point, and they were little, though. He would just go to the room, close his door, drink for a few hours, and then come out. Mm-hmm. Now, this was odd to me because that wasn't his behavior before. He would come in before, and it was instant engagement. Right. It was like, Dad's home, you know? And so I noticed this change in my family system and the change in people's behaviors, but I was too young and, and, and not experienced enough to understand what was happening. I didn't have the language for it, mm-hmm. but I just, I just felt it. I just felt the change. And so the very first thing that I, I started to do uh, was I started to journal. I actually went to a 7-Eleven by my house. And so I stole a notebook from there. Mm-hmm. So my parents, we grew up, I mean, they took care of everything. We weren't poor. We weren't rich. They took care of everything, but there was no extra. Mm-hmm. There was no extra in my house. So I didn't feel good about asking for a notebook right. to write in. Like, sure. I just didn't feel it. So I, I stole it. I just took one um, from the 7-Eleven because I felt this need to write about what was happening. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it with the kids at school. I didn't feel comfortable talking with my cousins because when we went around my family, they, act, mm-hmm. they acted like everything was fine. My parents mm-hmm. acted like everything was fine. But I'm recognizing this change, and I, I feel myself needing an outlet. So my very first coping mechanism is journaling. So I oh. turned to journaling. Wait a minute. Where, where does that come from? Is that, is that just a, a learned behavior? Did you, just, did you learn that from your mom? Who was the writer in your family? Because, you know, there's like kids that don't say, I'm going to yeah. journal. <laughs> I mean, somebody was writing and you saw it. So neither one of them uh, were writers. Uh-huh. My mother was a, a reader and my father was a reader. Okay. My father was more of a, a orator. He was a great storyteller. Mm. My mother was more of a reader. She had hundreds and hundreds of books. And so I loved reading growing up. I loved reading. But when you say, like, where it came from, it, it was just inside. Mm. Like I needed to write. Like, I needed to write what was going on mm. because it was the only way I felt like I could try to process right. what was happening. And so I remember I got the notebook, and I just started writing about everything I was observing in the house. I was, I was writing about their relationship, the words that they were using, and just everything. And I would even draw out the scenes like a little comic book. Mm. And so what happened for me at a very young age is this obsession was born almost to really just try to understand. That's really what I call it. It's just trying to understand behavior, mm-hmm. trying to understand human behavior. Uh, and so, you know, when you ask me how did I develop, you know, this, this base now, mm-hmm. it really started when I was a kid mm-hmm. off of the curiosity, yeah. off of just wondering, like, what's going on yeah. here? Right. You know? How much pain were you going through at this moment? You're watching... I mean, in the beginning, the household was quiet, calm, regular family, and then you're seeing this. How much pain were you going through and witnessing what your mother and father were going through? Man, a lot. A lot. It felt like too much. I, I remember running away from home. There was this kid named Jose, and his mom was so nice. She was so kind. 
And I wish I was in touch with him. Maybe he'll see this and mm-hmm. he'll reach out. But I just remember telling him about what was going on at the house. And he was like, man, just run away. Come live with me and my mom. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember one day the bus, you know, would drop me off right in front of my place. Uh, and then Jose would always stay on the bus and it would loop around the block. But this day, I just remember just having this anxiety and this dread just come over me mm-hmm. because I knew I wasn't going to go home that day. And uh, so I stayed on the bus and ended up going to Jose's house. And uh, we played Sega Saturn, mm-hmm. a gaming system that doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. We played Sega Saturn for, you know, maybe two hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then my, my mother and father came knocking on the door. They knew I was there. Because, right. mm-hmm. you know, at that age, they knew all my yeah. friends, yeah, you yeah. know. And I just remember getting in the car. My younger brother and sister in the car it was really cold in Illinois. Mm. And I just remember getting in and just saying to myself, like, I wish they would have never came. Mm. I wish they would have just forgot about me. And, you know, the truth is, it, I didn't necessarily feel that way. I just wanted the pain and the trauma to stop. I wanted right. the abuse to stop. Mm-hmm. I wanted the drinking to stop. I wanted the love and the peace to come back. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just didn't feel like they were capable of producing that anymore. Mm. So again, I just felt like I needed to, to run away. Right. You know, so that's when I knew it was bad mm-hmm. when I, you know, I'm 13 running away. Right. That's when I knew it was real, like a really bad, painful so situation. So did you lash out at all? Did, were there some actions that you were taking outside of, you know, knowing the dynamics of what were going on in the house outside of the house? Were you lashing out? Not at first. So my lashing out didn't happen until I was 14. And so what ended up happening was it was the last day of eighth grade. My mother picks me up from school, which is strange because I walked home, you know? Mm-hmm. And so she picks me up from school. My brother and sister are already in the car, jammed in the car. And um, by this time, my father had moved out already. He had moved out, and he was living in a, a suburb called Palatine. Mm-hmm. And so we get in the, on the freeway, and we're driving to Palatine, and I know that that's where we're going. And so I'm just like, looking like, why are we going here? He moved out. You know, the police had been at to our house mm. several times. There was fighting. There was, you know, I remember one time my dad locked himself in the, in the bedroom with knives. And he mm. said, if anybody comes in here, I'm killing you. You know, like this is what mm. was going on in the house. So I remember I'm asking myself, why are we going here? Why is my mother choosing to go back to this? Like, why? And so what ends up happening is we get there, we get to the house, and uh, it was mid-afternoon, because remember, I just left school. Right. And I walk in. My dad was drunk. Jack Daniels was his, his best friend right. at the time. Right. And he goes, um, you know, are you ready to be here? I'm like, ready to be here? Mm-hmm. I just left school the last day of school, which is, was field day. It was mm-hmm. always field day. It was right. like one of my favorite days. Mm-hmm. You get to run around and play all these games. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I can't believe you guys didn't tell me you were going to do this. You didn't tell me to say goodbye to my friends. Mm-hmm. Like you just took me. Didn't give me any information about what was going on. I remember feeling that day. I remember that was the first time I ever felt betrayed. Mm-hmm. I felt like they betrayed me because they didn't tell me we were moving. We were leaving. You know, so I never got that closure with my friends. Yeah. I never got to say bye. And um, that's when I started lashing out. Is, is when that moment happened, I started lashing out. And my lashing out was fighting. Mm. I will fight with anyone because when I was in the home, I couldn't fight back. Right. You couldn't fight back against mom and dad. You just had to take mm. what they were giving you. 
But now, at this point, I'm 13, 14. I'm starting to get a little stronger. Mm-hmm. My muscles are starting to develop. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to feel like I can fight. Mm-hmm. So, you know, last name McNutt, people <laughs> around the, the neighborhood, they yeah. would make jokes. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, you have jokes. Let's fight then. Uh-huh. Yeah. Let's uh-huh. fight. So right. that was my reaction, was to right. fight. And so, you know, I don't condone fighting. But what fighting did for me was it gave me my power back. Mm. You know, it gave me my power back. It let me tap into like this primal rage. You know, it let me it let me really understand that I could defend myself uh-huh. from my parents. Actually, I really could. Right. Because bef- before I, c- I thought I couldn't. You just don't fight. You don't fight your parents back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so when I started fighting around the neighborhood and coming away from these fights almost untouched, like uh-huh. Achilles, right? Feeling like a warrior. That's when I was like, wow, I'm a lot stronger than than I realized. Mm-hmm. And so the lashing out was fighting, fighting in the neighborhood. And then I started to go home, and I didn't get to the point where I felt like I could physically fight my father. You weren't ready for that work. But <laughs> you weren't ready for yeah, that Yeah, I wasn't smoke. ready yeah. for that yeah. yet. That's a different level. But I started talking back to him. Mm, yeah. I started giving it back to him. Mm-hmm. I started to assert myself a little bit. I started to say no a little bit. I started to say my opinion a little right. bit. You know, and that felt good. It felt really good. Man, that is amazing. So what did, what did your parents do at this time? What was their what was their occupation? Yeah, so my mother, she was an, an administrative assistant, and she loved that. It really, I feel like it really fit her personality. She was very structured, very organized. She was very punctual. She was very, uh, she was a great representative of the company. She worked for this company called uh, Butler Paper Company. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what they did. I just remember her being proud about having that sure. that career. And you know, my dad, he was a he was a chef. But he was like the leader of the chefs. He was, I don't know the exact title. Head Maybe chef. executive chef. Head oh, there chef. you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something of that nature. And so he would always, uh, you know, work with people from like a dietary perspective to try to get them mm-hmm. healthy. Right. You know, specifically he would work with the older population. Right. And I, I felt, you know, I felt like that was a great career because he, yeah. he would come home and he would teach us how to eat healthy. So I really, I really loved that. What happened, though, is that my, my mom ended up leaving her career because my, my dad got a DUI. And I feel like that's one of the demarcation points in my story, in their story, where things went from, like, great to not great. Mm-hmm. And so we went from the two, two parents working to now only one parent was working. So my dad kept his job because he was making more money. Mm-hmm. And what I feel like happened, and so I always tell people to think about this. When things happen, you have to think about the emotions that come up for you mm-hmm. in certain situations. Mm-hmm. So when I think about my dad, I think about him getting a DUI. Well, what emotions come up for that? Well, probably resentment, mm-hmm. probably anger, probably shame, mm-hmm. probably disappointment. Probably feels like he let us down. Mm-hmm. And then I think about the emotions that maybe came up for my mother, especially when she had to leave her job that she liked. Mm-hmm. She probably lost a lot of her identity. Mm-hmm. She probably resented my father mm-hmm. for his mistake. Right. And so when I, when I think of my parents and I think of their story, I think of... Who was there to support them in the 90s with these emotions? Right. Where was the mental health conversation? Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't at our family barbecues. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So where was the support that they needed? I don't fault my dad for getting a DUI. I don't fault my parents for, you know, the abuse that they put us through. I don't, I don't, know, fault, I don't fault them for that. I don't hold anything against them. It's just I just wish that there was some support available sure. for them. Sure. Mm-hmm. So they could have. One, maybe keep the family structure together, or two, if they couldn't keep it together, at least find uh, practical strategies to dissolve it. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to get to that point? Because to- it, it, I'm assuming that the age that you're going through all that, mm-hmm. you don't have the empathy that you have now for that. 
because it, it, it's a high level of emotional intelligence to say, hey, listen, like I was, I went through abuse. I went through these. I saw, you know, I, I saw my dad get the DUI. I saw my mom quit the fighting, all these things that, that were there. And most people would say, and that's not fair. Like I didn't choose any of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to go through that. Why did my parents who were supposed to be in charge of me? Why did they put me through that? Yeah. But you took, take the perspective of, like, I wish they had some, some more support. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to get there? It took a while. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was 17, I'll never forget this. I, uh, you know, I was always a hustler. I mm-hmm. always had to hustle. I always tried, had, to, had to be doing something. And, uh, you know, I'm playing football, working a job, doing school, which was, I mean, the trifecta. What mm-hmm. else can you do, you know, at that time? And uh, I'm working at Home Depot, and those checks were good. At, you know, when you're 17, those, yeah. checks, those Home Depot checks were good. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I bought my first cell phone. You know, I'm trying to take care of myself mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, become a man, I felt like. I'll never forget this moment. Uh, I come in the house, and my dad was like, go wash the dishes. Now, I hadn't had food in the house in a couple of days. Right. By this, by this point, him and my mom had separated. He was seeing someone else. And so they were, they were kind of just laying around, not really doing anything, two adults. And I'm sitting here coming in from a shift, yep. playing sports, in school. You're telling me to wash dishes that I didn't have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. I didn't even get any of the food from the dishes, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, I felt a certain way. And this was the very first time that I feel like I completely took my power back. I told my dad, I said, I'm not washing those dishes. Mm. And I used his own, I used his words against him, which is what triggered him. Uh-huh. You know, I said, you told me that I shouldn't be cleaning up after adults. You told me that if I'm going to work and I'm doing my thing, I shouldn't come home to a dirty house. This is what you told me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it oh, triggered bad him. Bad move, bud. Yeah, yeah, bad move. You can't use dad's words against dad. Um, you know, but. He didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So he tried to force me to do the dishes. He tried to, like, grab me. Well, by this point, you know, I've been power cleaning at this point, <laughs> <Right>. bench pressing. <laughs> and my energy was much more channeled and much more focused at 17 than it was at 14 mm-hmm. and at 13. Uh, and so I kind of just gave him a, you know, a forearm shiver. And I was like, get off me. And he tried to grab me. He was like, wash the dishes. You're going to wash these dishes. And he grabbed a, uh, I'll never forget, my dad was left-handed. So he grabbed this, like, frying pan. And he tried to swing and hit me with it. And I just put my, my, my arm up to block it. And I, I grabbed it out of his hand and I threw it. And I said, no more. Mm-hmm. You will never hit me again. Wow. If you cannot respect me, you won't talk to me. Mm. And my dad was like, pack your shit up and get out of my house. If you can't follow my rules, you won't be here. And I said, okay. So went to my room. At the time, I had a PlayStation 2. And this is, this is the neighborhood where I went to high school at. So it was so interesting because I walked in the room. I had all of my high school football newspaper clippings. Mm-hmm. Every interview I had was on the wall. Um, every time I was in the paper, I had my varsity jacket, had everything. Like all, all everything from track was in, in here, you know, my wall of fame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I walk in and I look at it. I knew this was going to be the last time I saw it. And I really just sat there and was appreciative of everything I went through in high school. Mm-hmm. Everything I went through, you know, because I really turned my life around in high school. That's mm-hmm. really what happened. 
and I'm looking at it. I, I can kind of see it here right now. I see the little P. It was uh, red and uh, it was red and gray. Packed my bag and I left. And I went and walked to my high school. And um, I sat out there and I just cried. I just cried and cried and cried. And I was so disappointed in my dad. I was so disappointed in him that he was still continuing to be abusive, mm-hmm. to be alcoholic, to be uh, domineering, to not respect me as a human being. Um, I called my mom and I was just cursing and screaming and yelling, just telling her what happened, mm-hmm. you know, telling her he kicked me out. And sitting at that high school at 17, you know, I realized that neither one of my parents were in a position to help me mm-hmm. at 17 which is a position that at 17 you should still be getting help. help. That's right. Yeah. From your parents. And I remember calling it uh what the fuck are you going to do moment? Mm-hmm. Because that's what I kept saying to myself. It's like what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I had I didn't have the answer. Right. So at that moment what happened for me was anger got distilled in my body. Mm-hmm. That became my de- my default emotion was anger. So I didn't have compassion or empathy for my father at that moment mm-hmm. or my mother. I was angry because they couldn't take care of me, right? I was angry. But I also was determined because I knew I needed something different. Mm-hmm. I knew I needed to change the, the trajectory that I was on. I knew I needed to change it. I knew that I had too much talent to waste. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had too much skill to waste. I knew I had too much in me to let this situation uh, just keep me here. I knew I was I was bigger than this situation. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was more. I just didn't know what it was, right. but I knew it was something bigger than this. Mm. So I sat there for a few hours. Finally, um, you know, the sun went down, and I was dating this girl. And I called her, told her what was hap- what was going on. And her, uh, come on, we're seventeen, eighteen at the mm. time. Her dad was like, "Yeah, you can. He can stay here for a couple of days." Oh. So I stayed, I was terrified oh, wow. to stay at the house. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said, yes. No, 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 baby, stay away from me. Stay away, stay away. <laughs> you know, stay away. They, they took care of me for a couple of days. And, um, you know, from there, it was just, my life from that point has just been a trajectory. It's just been, been on. So what was going moment. on at that point? So you're saying that you stayed at the house. Were you formulating a game plan on the next steps? Or where, where did you go after leaving from there? So I was very fortunate that, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I got to play sports. Right. Very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I got to play football. I got to play track. And it was always my dream to play college football. Yeah. And so I ended up walking on to, the, to uh, Northern Illinois University. Mm-hmm. And I was planting those seeds when I was in high school. The coach, the running back coach at the time is actually the head coach now of the university. Oh, wow. huh. mm-hmm. And uh, I called this man every day in high school. Called him every day. And typically with football, you know, you need to have a really good sophomore and junior year mm-hmm. to get the bigger opportunities come your senior year. And so that, that wasn't my situation. I was dealing with trauma, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so I knew that for me to play college football, I was going to have to do the work. Right. I was going to have to get my name out there. So Northern Illinois was right up the road. It was about 60 miles from me. So I called the coach every day. And I just said, hey, you know, obviously he stopped answering after a while. But <laughs> I would leave a voicemail and I would just say, hey, my name is Sylvester McNutt III. Uh, right now I play running back. Here's my stats. Uh, I would love to play defensive back or running, running back. Is there somewhere I can send film? And I just would call him all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time I would call him. And, you know, just putting myself out there. Right. But and why Northern Illinois? Just because it was close? Okay, so what happened was we went on a field trip, and we went to Northern Illinois. And when I went there, I just loved it. Like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is a great place. Like, <laughs> right. And I just decided 
at that moment, I said, I have to go to this college. Yeah. Where are you living at this time? Who, like, who are you staying with uh, at this pa- point? Palatine. I was in pa- back in Palatine. Okay. So, you know, I did my, all my four years in Palatine, Illinois, with my dad. All okay. four years was there. So he ended up letting you back in the house? or So that story that I told about when he kicked me out was at the end of high school. Okay. It was okay. at the very, okay. so very end. you already end. gone. Oh, knew it. you were going to Northern yep. Illinois. Okay. Yep. Got it. So, got yeah. It. So this was, you know, in the summertime. And so um, crazy. It was crazy. I ended up staying with my friend Mike for a few months, who was a teammate of mine. Mm-hmm. He was a junior when I, when I was a senior. And uh, his parents were amazing. Like, they took me to church with them. I, was, I wasn't really into church, but mm-hmm. they took me to church with them. They fed me breakfast, and they treated me like the way I thought a person should be treated. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny that I, I feel like this is such an important lesson because the, mom, the, the moment you say no to poor treatment, you know, to excuses, to pain, to trauma, whatever. The moment you say no, I feel like you open yourself up to new possibilities. Mm-hmm. The moment I said no to my father is the moment that new possibilities, this new family that offered me nothing but love came. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was only with them for a few months, but still it was just the possibility of something different. Mm-hmm. You know, so my plan, I went to college, and I, I let college and football be a vessel. Mm-hmm. You know, and I let it move me, and I let it, I let, I've invested everything I had into it. You know, so that was my plan. What, what years were you there? At Northern? At Northern? Yeah. I was there from uh, 03 to 09. Okay, did you cross paths with uh, AJ Harris? Oh yeah, of course. He's one of my teammates. That's my dude. AJ, yeah, AJ, I played with AJ in uh, in Canada. Yeah, good, good dude. Great man. guy. Yeah, He's good people. So AJ Harris, he was uh, he was one of the top running backs in high school mm-hmm. uh, in Illinois. He was also a hurdler. He yep. was a big dude, man. He yep. was like he was like six one. He's probably like two fifteen. He was fast, but he was smart too. Mm-hmm. He was a very smart guy. Yeah, he was one yeah. of my teammates. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so so you go through college and and, and you. I mean, how did the football career work out? I mean, how was it balancing school, football, and you were a walk-on? So, you know, you had to either come up with financial aid, work a job. I mean, you had to pay for a living. How, how did that all play out for you? Yeah, so my football career was cut short um, because of academics. Mm-hmm. It was very hard to focus on school with all the trauma and pain that I was dealing with. Mm-hmm. At this point, not talking to my father, right. mm-hmm. not having a relationship with my mother, and like you say, being at school trying to find a way to pay for everything. It was very. It was just very hard to uh, focus when you have all these distractions, mm-hmm. you know. So I never got to completely fulfill my entire football career. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ended up happening was after uh, five years of being in school, I decided and I was only on the football team for two years. I decided that I was going to play arena football mm-hmm. because at this point I needed money. Mm-hmm. You know, I needed money at this point. Was the goal to be NFL? Like was what yeah, was I the, was hoping for that. Okay. But honestly, my goal was to become an author. Huh? Yeah. yeah, that was always my goal. I always wanted from, to be an from when? From when? when from thirteen when you started writing that journal? Man, I used to read these uh, Goosebumps by oh, R. Yeah. L. Stein. Yeah, yeah, the little yeah. horror, the little <laughs> horror books. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, like if you could, like, he used to make me feel so much, so much emotion. I remember being in my room just reading these books, and I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that for people, mm. just to give them like this emotional feeling through a book. So I always wanted to be an author. You know, I would go read my mom's books. She would have, like, John Grisham and Nora Roberts. And this was way above me, like, mm. way above me. I would just go take them and read them. Uh, she would have Stephen King, all that stuff. Yeah. So, like, yeah, my mom is, is probably the reason I became an author because she loved books. Mm-hmm. You know, she would read with me. So, yeah, you know, obviously when you're playing football, everyone says, yeah, I'm going to make yeah, it to the NFL. Sure. Or I would love to. Everyone right. says yeah, that. Absolutely. Uh, but I'm 5'9". You know, I'm 5'9", 
my coach told me, this is funny. My coach told me when I was in high school, he says, I asked him why my friend James was getting recruited. You know, James, 6'1", 215. He's running like a 22 in the 200. <laughs> got a 31 on the ACT. He's right. like, he's the perfect person to get a scholarship. I'm like, coach, why does James get all these letters? Like, what does he do? Like, mm. he's not a better football player than me at this point. This is what I said to my coach, <laughs> which I probably shouldn't have said. But that's how I felt. Right. Sure. You know? I'm like, he's not a better football player than me at this point, but he's obviously getting all the letters and all the right. recognition. You know, what is it? And my coach, he said something to me. He was a hater, okay? Mm. We, know, we know what a hater oh, is. Uh. He was a hater. He goes, he goes, Sly, colleges, they don't want people like us. You know, you're not big enough. You're not tall enough. You're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. They don't want people like us. I'm like, wow, this is my coach. This is the head coach of the football program yeah. in high school. And, but what he didn't say was anything about intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, Coach, you're right. I might not be the fastest person out here. But who's to say I can't be the smartest? Right. So what I did was my junior and senior year, because I knew I was behind, mm-hmm. I stopped going to lunch period. And fooling around, we had off-campus lunch. Everybody would mess around with girls, and, you know, a lot of my teammates would go drinking. I didn't do any of that. I went to the film, to the film room. Every day I would just study film because my coach Mm. is right. I'm not going to be the biggest, fastest, and strongest, but I can be the smartest. Mm. So what would happen is we would get in games, and typically, you know, a quarterback is the only person who can call an audible. Right. Well, I'm a running back. And I remember I would be like, Todd, Todd, 22 guys, you know. Right, I'd yeah. be calling out plays. And then he would make audibles. Uh-huh. And then my coach gave me the green light to make audibles. He's like, Sly, you know what's going on. How, <laughs> how do you know what's going on? It's because uh-huh. well, I study. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm committed to this. Because you, you told me I can't be the biggest, fastest, or strongest. Right. But you didn't tell me I couldn't right. be the smartest. Mm-hmm. So I always knew, like, even when I was playing sports, like, I had an intellectual edge. You know, I always knew that that was my edge. Like, sports was just a vessel for me. Mm-hmm. It was just a safe haven for me to release all the negative energy right. that was brewing inside of me. For me, sports wasn't my end-all, be-all. Right. So you realize, I mean, so you play two years of ball, and then academically, are you focusing on journalism? Or are you f- focusing on communications? What's, communications. Yeah. Mm. See, yeah. See, we got a lot in common, man. Yeah. Common major, man. Yeah. <laughs> communication. But, okay. but he actually went to class and learned because yeah, he's a very things. good communicator. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's something out. there. There's something there. I see that. I see that. Uh. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a quick break from the episode and recognize an opportunity that we all have. It, if you are having a hard week or you just need some R&R, Here's what you got to do is you got to drive up 75 north, cross the Red River to Durant, Oklahoma, to Choctaw Casino and Resort. It is the best getaway that you can Mm. get if you're in the Dallas area by far. And guess what? If you're listening from somewhere outside of DFW, say you're in South Texas or you're in another state, which we've got some listeners uh, in other states. Fly into Dallas, drive up. It is worth every penny. You don't have to go to Vegas anymore to have a world-class experience at a world-class resort and casino. Yeah, we talk about the restaurants that are up there, those steakhouses. We talk about the concert venue. Uh, we, we had a conversation with Aaron Watson previously, and he talked about the, the intimacy. Every single seat in that concert venue is right on top. And there's not a bad seat in the house. There's not. And so these artists talk about it's one of the best places to play. And so go check, check out your, yourself a concert, the spa, the, the brand-new expansion. I mean, it's just such a good time. To your point, Tyler, if you need a break, things are getting crazy, times are tough, Get up there. Get up to Choctaw Casino Resort. Have yourself a great time. We, we experience it. We love it. Uh, they're doing great things in the community. Can't say enough good things, and we're so grateful for their partnership. That's Choctaw Casino Resort. Go check them out. 
Now back to the episode. Okay, so all right, so so you so you graduate from Northern Illinois, you finish finish school, and then what's next for you? Is it is it? Hey, I'm I'm all in on this author thing. What's yeah? Okay, so um, you know the alchemists they they talk about this. Um, it comes from Latin. It's called prima materia, mm-hmm. prime matter. So you have this prime matter in your life. So all we're doing right now is telling a story, right? right. And so at, at some point, I'm living this story, right? Not in the present moment. But at some point, I'm living this story. Oh, you know, I did this in college. I didn't have the support. My coach said this to me. This person was a hater. I wish my mom and dad, all these things, right? This is my, at one point, this is my present life. And so with this prima materia, with the material of our lives, at some point, we have to cook the material. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, this comes from the alchemist. Yeah. And so what they say is, is that you have to create a safe vessel to cook the material. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Picture like a boat, you know, like if we're going to put everything on a boat, is the boat safe enough to hold the material of your life? And so obviously being in college and playing sports, that that really wasn't a safe vessel to process anything. High school really wasn't a vessel to process anything. And so when I got out, that's when it was all about it's time to process this trauma Mm -hmm. because you can't just live with it. Right. You can't just, oh, just get up and go to work and lift weights. You can't be on autopilot. It's time to sit with this. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's when I started going to therapy. Mm-hmm. I ended up working at uh, Verizon. And so with my very first check, I bought a car, and I bought my very first therapy session because mm-hmm. I wanted to talk uh, to a professional about what I was dealing with, what I was going through. Uh, then the very next step was I tried to get my whole family to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't go. But I asked everybody, I wanted everybody to go brother, sister, mom, dad, because again, we grew up in a, in a traumatic family system. And so I was like, well, I'm working now. I'm working Mm -hmm. at Verizon. So I want everyone to go. And, um, there was a lot of resistance. They obviously didn't go. And, um, it was at this point where I'm at Verizon, I'm doing sales, um, moving up in the company. I'm like top 1% in sales. Mm -hmm. And I really just had that calling. The calling was just in me, and I had to listen because I was going to, I reached this point where I was going to work mm-hmm. just for money, mm-hmm. right. and that didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Working just for money didn't feel good. Right. I felt like I had lost my purpose. I felt like I wasn't tapped into my calling. I felt like I wasn't really tapped into my skills. You know, the skills I was using, yeah, you know, talking to people, connecting with people, sure, but the dev- selling devices, selling technology, that, that doesn't move me. It didn't move me. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in a space where, you know, this space, mm-hmm. we're having real conversation. And so uh, I had to start hustling again. So I kept my Verizon job, and I knew that I needed to transition. Well, only 1% of authors can live off of their work, can live off of their money, mm-hmm. only 1%. And I knew this. And so I'm thinking to myself, how do I become an author who's a part of that 1%? Like, how can I live off of my work? Right. But also, how do I not make it about money? Mm. Like, what's the entry point there? How do you yeah. do that? And so, finally, I just said, you know what? I can't worry about it. I just need to do what I need to do. So I wrote my first book while I was working at Verizon. But the way I did that is I was a manager at this point. The way I would do it is I would go to the bathroom. I would take, like, four or five bathroom breaks a day. Mm. And I wouldn't even be using the bathroom. Wait, is, would, that, is that not normal? <laughs> <laughs> We're not supposed to go that many times. Yeah, we probably should. So be you're going saying there. I could have written a book by now? <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! I use it all the time to actually use the bathroom. Uh, 
I, I will go in there five or ten minutes at a time, and I will pull out my iPhone four, and I will write my first book right there. My whole first first book, I wrote it on my phone. So I will write it on the phone. And this is 2010? At this point. Um, so I started Verizon 2010, left college 2009. I uh, wrote my first book 2012. Okay. So this was about two years at, at on Verizon. Your phone. You on your phone. Are you talking to your phone? On bathroom or breaks. No, I just thumbs, typing on, yeah. um, thumbing it. Just thumbing it out. Yep, <laughs> I would just thumb what it out. What was it about? What, what just was in the, the stall book? next to you. Okay, so my very first book was called Success is a Choice. And so... That's really what, what it was about is the mm-hmm. mindset of success. What does it mean to be successful? Uh, and so I ended up writing a book and I published a book on Amazon, mm-hmm. self-published it. I made my own um, publishing company and published it. And then I just started carrying the book around with me. Wait a minute. You, so, wait a minute, wait a minute, oh, yeah, this, this is too you made good. your own publishing company. Yeah. So you're just totally independent doing this on your own. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how old were you? Uh, what? 25, I think. 25, 26. Where did this come from? Where did, like, how did you know to do this? To be honest with you, I got that from rappers. Huh. Huh. Yeah, because I remember uh, there's this rapper, Master P. Master P, yeah. Oh, yeah. He sold it out of his trunk. Yeah, yeah. he used to sell, sell the music out of his trunk. And yeah. I just always remembered that story when I was a kid. I was like, wow, like, man made a million dollars selling music out of his trunk. Yep. Yeah. Like, I was like, why can't I do that with books? So literally, I just had my first book. And what ended up happening was I was working at Verizon, and this client came in. And kind of like how we have the books on the table, mm-hmm. he just kind of asked. He's like, hey, what's that one book? And I was like, this one? And I sold it, but I didn't say it was like my book. Uh-huh. I was just like, oh, yeah, this is success is a choice. This is a really good one. And I just started talking about <laughs> it. And uh, he's like, okay, yeah, let, let me get that. Let me get that. I was like, you want like you want this? He, I, gave, I gave him a book. Comes back in like two or three days later. He's like, man, this was great. He's like, you got any more of these? What's, where'd you get this? You know, he, he had all these questions. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wow, like. He liked it. Right. Like, you, you know, saw the reaction. Yeah. yeah. Like I had, I had this, this validation. I'm like, right. wow, like he really liked it. Like <laughs> that was great. So I went and told, I was, keep in mind, I was a manager at this point. So I went and told my district manager about it, like just sharing mm-hmm. it in, as a victory. And my district manager was like, wait a minute. So you wrote a book and you're selling your product in our stores? Oh. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, I shouldn't have said anything. You're like, and I wrote it while being paid by y'all. <laughs> I'm in this thing in the bathroom. <laughs> so, but the confirmation was like, wow, like, if this one guy really loved it to the point where he came back, I'm like, mm-hmm. well, maybe there's something else there. Mm-hmm. So I remember going back to Amazon. And Amazon had this thing where you could make your book free mm-hmm. and it would, it would get in front of other, other people's eyes. Well, I wasn't doing this for money because I had my career at the time. So I, I, I hit the button. I hit the little promo button. And there was like 500 copies of my book got mm. bought, quote unquote, for free. Mm. So I'm just sitting here like, wow, like this is amazing. Mm-hmm. I obviously didn't make any money. Right. But 500 people have my book. Mm, like right. I thought that that was amazing. Uh, and so what ended up happening, to answer your original question, uh, I never used social media, but everyone was on social media. Everybody was on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. This is 2012. Yeah. So I said to myself, well, I don't use social media, but millions of people do. So I said to myself, why don't I just take excerpts and, and images of my book and just put them on social media? And maybe that'll find, maybe to find people. Uh, so literally my very first one was a post-it note. I actually just wrote on a post-it note. I just wrote something you know, some corny catchphrase, mm-hmm. wrote it on a post-it note and shared it. And it got like a hundred likes, my very first post on social mm-hmm. media. 
I'm like, you know, I didn't really know if this was normal. I'm like, 100 likes. I'm like, wow, this is it's cool. It's not. We've been doing the show for almost two years. <laughs> we're still waiting for our 100th like on one post. So. All right, well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there with this. But I was just thinking, like, wow, Mike, this is cool. Like, 100 people liked this, meaning mm-hmm. they interacted with it. So I'm just putting my, – my brain is just putting things together. And that's when I realized, like, you – all you have to do is just get to the people. Mm-hmm. You just got to get to the people. And I knew I had a message, and I knew I, I knew words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just had to get to the people. So I started posting every day. I kept my books with me every day. And every time I would enter conversation with someone, I would tell them about my books. Right. Right. I started a website, and then I would put everything on, on my website. And I just started putting myself out there. Right? So nobody knew me. No. Right. Yeah. I just started putting myself out there. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say, man, I, I got a handful of questions. I got one that's yeah. like not serious and then one that's that's the legitimate question. Mm-hmm. Uh, first non-serious question. When I when I think of writing a book, my biggest fear is the editing aspect of it. So if you published it yourself, who did you have go in and review? Because, man, those spe- – I mean, oh, you're doing it on your check. phone. There's no spell check <laughs> for on, sure on the iPhone. Yeah. So you're just reading it over and over so, and over. Or do you have some other people helping you out? The very first book, there was no spell check. Right. There was nothing. <laughs> right. I just put it out. Right. Right. I didn't say it was great. <laughs> I just put it out. It's real. But that's what we need sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Is oh, we man. need to put ourselves out there, even yeah. with our flaws and our yeah. mistakes. It's uh, good. Obviously, now there's people that you can. I have an editor now. Yeah. Right? You can hire someone. Yeah. You know, but. Sometimes we got to stop waiting for perfect before we put ourselves out there. Yeah, talk to, talk about that because that first book, what, what, did you have the confidence? I mean, obviously you did because you did it, but was there any hesitation there? Like, I don't know if there this was none. Good? I was you called to do it. it. I was called to do it. It was bigger than me. Mm. You know, who am I to stop myself from doing something that I'm called to do? Mm. We got to yeah. follow our callings. Right. You know, I felt called to do it. I, I'm in the bathroom working on this thing. Like, (laughs) I had to do it. Right. You know? I just think, I mean, I think of, and I think that some people have some wiring, right? Some some, uh, predisposition to being certain, having traits and being able to put themselves out there. But because of what you went through, right, and being on your own at 17, right, not having the support, and not having really the support before that even, I mean, you had to put yourself out there. So it didn't sound like, I mean, you did it in high school to college coaches. I never would have mm-hmm. called college coaches every day over and over, over and over. I never would have done that. But you, because of your journey, because of the challenges, because of the obstacles you had to learn to overcome, I'm not saying it was second nature, but it, you didn't have to spend a ton of time hesitating and, and waiting for it to be perfect. So my, my other question is, is you mentioned that, look, I'm working at Verizon. Like, that's not my calling. That's not what it is. But you write a book called Success is a Choice. So what was that book? How, when you're writing this, right, and you're still working this job, but now you're pursuing your dream, right? Mm-hmm. And you're making the choice to be something different. But was there a conflict there internally saying, okay, hey, I'm writing this book about this, but... I'm still doing something for the money ultimately, right? So what was that mindset going through? There or was, was that something you wrestled with? Yeah, there was no conflict because I knew I needed to do what I needed to do to survive. Mm-hmm. But I also know, knew that I needed to follow my calling. Yeah. So I respected what the job was, and it was a, a thing to keep me surviving mm-hmm. and to keep me engaged in life. Mm-hmm. But I also knew it was just a vessel. You know, a lot of people, I feel like we look at everything as if it's all the time or no, everything is a vessel. Mm -hmm. 
some you get in and you get out. Sometimes I think what thirteen years mm-hmm. you played in the NFL. Yeah. That's a vessel. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure you play with people who only play for six months right. or a year or some longer than you. It's a vessel. So the way I look at everything is, how do I extract the most out of this vessel? And also, how do I give myself the most, give the best I can? Mm-hmm. You know, so when I'm working at Verizon and working on my book, yeah, I was on their time in the bathroom, but I also have the number one store in the company, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. of I'm investing myself fully. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to show up, oh, I don't want to be at this job. I, I want to follow my calling right. and then not give my all and not give my everything. I'm going to be overcommitted. I'm going to show up and I'm going to give the best that I can. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a great answer. And I yeah. think... And the reason I ask that is is because so many people are afraid, not only like, okay, hey, I got to wait until it's perfect to put it out there, but so many people, myself included, are so afraid of being a hypocrite because hypocrites and being hypocritical is like, it is the worst thing. Just because, and, and I'm not saying you were being a hypocrite, for fear of it and fear of what other people would think of us. Oh, hey, like, I'm, I'm not a multimillionaire entrepreneur. Success is a choice, right? Like I'm going through life. I'm choosing success and I'm going to write it in present time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not afraid of what you think that my status is or what my level is. And that, and that was the point of it. it that was not me saying, hey, man, mm-hmm. you had no yeah. right to, to, yeah. to write well, that. It was but, like, dude, that's it. Like just because, just because in the mainstream view, you're not an elite success, doesn't mean you have you don't have something extremely valuable well, to it, share. And it also depends on your definition. That's what I was going to ask you. What was your definition of success then? Definition of success? Yeah. Well, at, at that point, you wrote about mm-hmm. success as a choice. How are you defining success at that point? At that point in my life, I saw myself as a success because I survived. Well, a, mm. a lot of other people would have been killed under. There you go. So to me, anything that I would have done at this point would right. have been successful. You know, success to me really is about following when you have something that happens inside of you, you know, and you follow that thing, you pursue it. You know, we, we, especially as athletes, sometimes we can look at life as win or lose. Did you make it or not? Mm -hmm. But life is more colorful than that. Life is so much more colorful than did you win or did you lose? You know, there's people who, even in the sports realm, it's like, we were just talking about this, you know, people who've been in, in before the show, we were talking Mm -hmm. about this. It's like, we look at the top athlete. We look at like LeBron or Aaron Rodgers, and it's like these are the people that are successful. Mm-hmm. But then just because you don't know the 53rd man on the roster or because you don't know the, the 14th guy on the NBA bench, that doesn't mean he's not a success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw it on Twitter the other day. They were talking about uh, one of LeBron's teammates. I think his name was uh, John Holland. He was from like the championship team in 2016. And they pulled up his stat, and he, he only averaged two points a game. And you had these people roasting him on Twitter mm-hmm. because he only averaged two points a he game. Murder you if he was out Do you right. know what would happen <laughs> if you played this Trust man? Trust me. Do I, you we, know? I, we played. I played against guys. You know? Who were on the D League. They would hit, hit, hit me on you. Yeah. Trust me. So, you know, to me, success isn't about grading, you know, the levels of things. It's really mm-hmm. about – you have this thing inside of you. Did you go after it? Yeah. yeah you have yeah. a book inside of you. Are you going to go after yeah. it? Or are you going to succumb to the fear? You know yeah. what it is? I, and I'm looking at you. I'm sitting here. You're probably looking. Why in the hell is he staring at me? Because there are certain people in your experiences in the, in the inner city and what you've dealt with in your life. Like those experiences are one thing. 
But you are a manipulator of words, man. You know how to communicate those words and tell a story of what the, those things that I've never been that guy that could tell that story of all the pain that's been in my life. Like I've had so much trauma, but I've kind of like you've been able to express it. I've been I've been able to find ways to hold it within because I haven't been someone that can manipulate, manipulate my words and communicate my thoughts in that way. I think it's beautiful, man, because I, I remember hearing Maya Angelou talk about her experiences in life and that when she became a poet, the reason she became a poet was because she could put those words out. And it's beautiful when you can do that, man. That's why I'm sitting here looking at you going, dude, I mean, I've watched people and you think about rappers like the Jay-Z's and the T.I.'s and the Kanye West. They're, 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 they're words. They can express themselves in a way. And if you've been there before, like I've been there before and I'm hearing your story, it, it means something to me. And I really appreciate you coming out and, and talking about that, man. It's been so awesome. So let's, let's spend a little bit of time talking what you learned in therapy. We, we got to it and then we kind of mm-hmm. stopped. What was, what was that experience like for you and what did you pull out of it? Well, therapy wasn't for me. Okay. It didn't, it didn't heal me. It didn't help. Um, I mean, it's the truth for me. It didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't help me. What really helped me the most was um, finding forgiveness. Yeah. And um, the reason I say therapy didn't help me, I needed... What I needed most was to understand what my parents was go- were going through. Mm-hmm. That's what I needed. And when I, f- when I found understanding... I also found that it was okay to forgive them. And when I forgave them, I released the anger that I was holding on to. And so there was just a waterfall of consequences of forgiveness. Um, and I think, I, I don't know, I think therapy is great for people, but it just, it didn't help me. So mm-hmm. what was it that got you to that? Because you can genuinely see it in you as we talk to you mm-hmm. that, that you are at a place of 100% love for your parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that most people don't get to that place having gone through through what you did. So what was it? If it wasn't therapy, it wasn't, what allowed you to recognize, man, like the burden that I've been carrying, right, that without forgiving them is too great and I'm tired of it and I need to forgive them. It probably was just my calling, mm. honestly. Just committing myself to to my books, you know, I have eight books, committing myself to the work, um, because you don't write the books without doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, and so really just doing the work of, you know, holding space for conversations about trauma and healing, and especially, you know, just being a black man, and where I come from, black men, we don't want, we didn't typically have these conversations, mm-hmm. when, when I look on TV, I don't see black men like me, I don't really see men at all mm-hmm. like me, you know, having this conversation, especially also being an athlete, you know, it was weird when I would be around a lot of my athlete brothers and teammates, and I would tell them, oh, I write poetry. They're like, well, what the fuck you mean you write poetry? Right. That's, that's sissy. That's gay. You yeah. know, these type of, like, emasculating terms. Right. I, I, don't, I don't mean to disrespect no, anybody. No, I don't know. Right. That, yeah. That's the type of terminology you would hear. No, you're exactly right. And I would tell them, like, no, dude, I'm great. Like, I got some poetry. Right. And they'd be like, oh, well, you think you're the next Tupac or somebody? It's like, well, I'm not trying to be Tupac, but, like, I'm probably, good, but probably, you know, I'm good with the words, words you know, yeah. and I would yeah. tell them. And um, <clears throat> so finally, one day I just, you know, I said, this is what I have to do. 
I got to hold these spaces. And, and um, you know, I work with this mental wellness company called Mind. I'm one of the founders of the company. Mm-hmm. And um, we just got a praise for, for about $14 million. Our company's mm-hmm. worth $14 million. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do with Mind is bring the mental health conversation to everyone's cell phone. You know, because you look on social media and it's easy to get distracted. Mm-hmm. You know, there's porn, um, betting, you know, movies. There's so much on your cell phone. And, uh, you know, I'm not here to shame any of it because everybody has their thing. Right. right. But at the same time, our mindset is we want to make mental health available on the, on the device as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just so proud to be a part of something like that mm-hmm. because my driving force is. I wish my parents had the support. I wish me, little me, had mm-hmm. the support, you know? So everything I'm doing now is about developing that support so when different family systems come along and they need help, mm-hmm. they can find it through a book, mm-hmm. through a podcast, you know, through the app. And then I wanted to be a father. I knew that the where I was at mentally and emotionally, mm-hmm. I couldn't be a father under those circumstances. Right. Because to me, I wanted to have a family that was built around love, built around empathy, built around support and encouragement. Not saying it's always easy. Mm-hmm. Not saying, you know, there will be no anger or, or disappointments mm-hmm. or any of that. But I wanted my family structure to be built around love. And I knew that that was going to start with me. You know, and, and even though there was trauma and there was pain in my family system, I still feel like my parents wanted to give as much love as they could. Right. And I feel like they did. You know, but they just they couldn't mm. metabolize some of the problems that they were dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Before we continue on what you're doing now, let's let's wrap a bow up on your story. So you write that first book, you start hustling, spreading it yourself, doing that thing. You start to see some some success. Where did you go from there? What where did you lead to the second book? What, what did life look like after that point? You know, uh, the first book, people wanted it. It was like it was like a drug. They were just like, I need more. I need more. When's your next book? And people started putting pressure on me. Like, where's the next book? Where's the next book? But uh, that's actually when the conflict started to come in with the, with the career at this point. Because, you know, I was investing so much time at Verizon. And even on top of the time, I, ju- I was just investing my best energy. Mm. I was giving my best energy to this job. Mm. Then I go home wow. and I'm drained. Mm-hmm. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, wow, if I want to write a book, I need my best energy. I can't give that to someone else. Mm-hmm. So I saved up like $30,000 and just quit my job. And I just said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the author thing work. So no, but you didn't have any idea. You had no confidence at this point that anything, no signs necessarily. No, I had Other than I'm going to make this work. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was a sign. Right. Mm-hmm. I was a sign. I said, this, is, this has to work. Yeah. And yeah, I saved up $30,000, quit. I started doing personal training on the weekends because mm-hmm. I felt like that was an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, former football players, got certified mm-hmm. as a personal trainer. So I did that on the weekend to try to keep some money coming in. And then my new nine to five was just my career that wow. I have now. So I just made it happen. Wow. I made it happen. Put the second book out. And, you know, I don't want to make this all about money, but like the day I released the book, you know, I made like $10,000 the mm-hmm. day I released the book. Mm-hmm. And I just cried. I just cried, 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 man. Like I just crawled up in a ball and just cried because, you know, I, didn't, I never thought that that would have been possible yeah. to make money from a book, you know, especially $10,000. You know, I had enough to actually get food now, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. to actually take care of things. So it was like. What was the name of your second book? Uh, the second book was called The Dear Queen Journey. 
and it was a poetry book. You know, it was, it was about this guy who was, he went through a toxic relationship mm-hmm. and he was trying to find out how to avoid toxic relationships mm. and, and, and what's the, the mindset and, and some of the things you can look for in relationships. And so this whole journey was about this guy looking for his queen. Mm. So essentially it was me That's trying to find my, my girl. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know what I'm always interested in? Is TV shows and movies, you see this a lot. The first one is great, right? Yeah. It is awesome. Yeah. And then season two, season three, not as good, right? And, and how I justify that is this writer spent their whole life writing that first season. They spent all their energy, all their time, all their effort went to that first season. And it's almost like they used it all up and then the two and three. So for you, how hard was it to write that second book? Was it just natural? Oh, it was easy. Was it easy? So book one through eight, easy. I was just pulling from some place. Mm-hmm. It was bigger than me. Mm-hmm. So it was easy. You know, boom, back, back to back, back to back. And what ended up happening is the book that I'm writing now is the hardest one. I just finished it like two weeks ago. It's called Loving Yourself Properly. It's my ninth book because it tackles the question of what is self-love? Because about two years ago, all I heard everywhere I went was, oh, you know, just love yourself. Yeah, just love yourself. And my brain was just like, okay, well, what does that mean? Because self-love to you is going to be different than me. Right? So what does that mean? And so I started writing the book and... um. It was May 2019. Well, then I found out I was having a kid. And then we had a pandemic. So then those two events really halted my ability to just flow Mm -hmm. because I had to deal with life. I had to deal with all the emotions of becoming a father, all the emotions of the pandemic. And so it took me two years to write this book. And so I feel like it's the best one, though, because I did. I gave myself that time. I didn't push. I didn't force. It was more. See, the first eight books, I still had that survival element where I knew that I was still hustling and I needed this to survive. But this, it wasn't like that. Mm. This was more of you're allowed to just be a writer now. Right. Mm. You're not doing it for any of those reasons. You're not doing it for survival. You're not doing it for money. Now you're doing it genuinely for the art, you know, which is how I was when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So that's what I love about this project is I got to really sit with it. And really have a genuine relationship with the work. Yeah. So you're, you're, you need to feel. Mm-hmm. It, it just comes from a feel from what you've mm-hmm. experienced, right? Uh, the other question I have for you is, how has it been? I'm sure the other publishing companies have been trying to knock down your door mm-hmm. and wanting to work with you. You're doing all this independently, correct? Um, so for the first few years, I was, I was not in a place where I could be cohesive with a publishing company. Mm-hmm. So I said no. There was a big ego thing there, too, where I wanted to prove I could do this, mm-hmm. especially being told um, my junior year in college, my professor told me that I would never be an author. She says that my words just don't connect. Mm-hmm. Those were her words. It was um, Poetry 355 at Northern Illinois University. And so there was an ego thing where I wanted to prove to myself that I could do this. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of publishing companies reach out, and I just told them all no. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that changed. Um, I recently got connected um, with Steve and Jan at um, Folio Management. Mm-hmm. They're uh, publishing agents. And so I got connected with them. So I signed with them. And my 10th book, they they are actually going to be selling the book and getting it to one mm-hmm. of the big five publishing houses. Right. Now, the main reason for doing this, though, is I want to go back to what you were saying. You know, I want to play big. Mm. I actually feel like I've been playing small, and I want to play big. 
Mm-hmm. And so part of Plan Big is to sign with one of the big five publishing houses right. because their distribution deal um, is immaculate. They can mm-hmm. get you everywhere, everywhere in every country. They can get your book translated. Mm-hmm. I can't do that on my own. Right. So I feel like I've reached this threshold where I've done everything that I can do as a self-published author. Right. And so now uh, I did team up with them, uh, Steve and Jan, so they can get my 10th book to the right. publishing company. So does that go, can you go back to your first books and do the same? Will they help you with those as so well? So the way that works in the book industry is um, it's called your catalog. Uh-huh. And so if I wanted to, I could sell my rights right. to my catalog. Okay. Now to do that, because it's monthly reoccurring revenue, revenue. they're right. going to have to cut a big check. Right. So I could. Right. So I've set myself up now for success where I have these properties right. that I can use. Mm-hmm. I have leverage. Yep. An entrepreneur, bro. Yeah. That book game Seriously. is like he, that, you, you think it, different than I do. I can promise you that. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yes, he does. He's different at all. <laughs> so, and, and and I don't mean to keep hitting on this therapy thing. And you said, hey, look, the, the therapy counseling was not not really for me. Do you find that writing was that for you? Because it yeah. sounds, it feels like you discovered a lot of yourself yeah. and a lot of wounds that you had through writing. Writing is my therapy. I still write every day. Uh-huh. You know, it's one of my healing mechanisms to this day. Mm-hmm. I'll get up, get my, I was on the plane this morning, wrote a couple pages on the, on the MacBook. Are you writing books or are you just writing just thoughts? Uh, free writing. This morning was free writing. It was free writing with kind of the influence of it may be towards a book or something of that mm-hmm. nature. Uh-huh. Um, but I write every day. Yeah. Sometimes I'll have a prompt, like I'll ask a question. How do you feel about this? Or what's your opinion on this? And sometimes I just free, just mm. flow freely. Sharpening your sword. You know, I recommend it five minutes a day, but don't think about it. Don't try to control it. Mm. Don't judge it. Don't don't edit it. Just five minutes a day. Right. How do you feel? Every single five minutes. Boom. It it really gets you in a habit of becoming one with the words. You know, no, no, no barriers. Just just write. Just Just write. Whatever flows out through your hand. Just write it. Mm -hmm. Interesting. When you get done, you say thank you. You thank yourself. Mm. You don't judge it. You don't grade it. You just thank yourself for sharing that space. You know, the intimate space of diving into how you feel at that moment. And what does that do for somebody that, that, that writes for five minutes? What does that do for them? Uh, or what does I it think, do for you? You I know, guess? I, think, I think it keeps you in the practice. It's really easy to get out of a writing practice. Because, again, like, you know, I got yeah. a son. And, you know, now I've reached a point where I have business. Mm-hmm. So I have beautiful things like this to right. do. Come on a podcast. And it's like... I work out still. You know, there's so many different things that I can do that get me out of, you know, LeBron said it best. He says, keep the main thing the main thing. Mm-hmm. So even as I keep growing and, and, and doing different things, business, entrepreneur, I got to write. Right. That's what started it. So you got to stay true to that. Yeah. Yeah. Some, something I wanted to talk to you about, especially because the way you encourage people is, is you know, the last two years, we've all been through a lot. And, and, I mean, arguably the most any, you know, anybody's been through ever. And, you know, when you look at the pandemic and you look at the racial divide and political divide and you got you welcome the sun during this time, you're, you're multi- juggling all your businesses. How have you managed all of that these last two years with yeah. so much going on? Yeah, well, we're not meant to metabolize the world experience. Our brains are not set up that way. We're typically meant to metabolize about 100 to 150 people. That's our community. That's what we can process. And so it's very important that we localize our experiences. You know, you can have empathy for something you see on the news. Oh, well, this happened in Chicago. This happened in New York. This happened 
wherever it happened. You can definitely have empathy for that. Mm-hmm. But if every day you're tapped into the news, then you're looking for what, what is going to happen to your energies. Your energy will be displaced amongst the world. But you're, you're supposed to have localized energy. I'm supposed to be able to call you and say, wow, you know, my mom's not doing well. Or my cousin's sick. And you can have empathy for me because of the relationship that mm-hmm. we have. Mm-hmm. But when every single day we are getting information from the news, it's not good for us. So the number one thing I recommend for people to do is to have a healthy boundary with the news, mm-hmm. with social media, yep. with the news, with how much you're intaking because you cannot digest it all. Mm-hmm. And it's not good for your psyche. It's not good for your energy to digest everything. So the number one thing that I do is I don't, you know, watch the news like that. Mm-hmm. I can't. The most important news to me when I wake up is how's my son doing? Mm-hmm. How's yeah. his mom doing? Mm-hmm. Have I touched base with my feelings, mm-hmm. with my emotions? How's my energy? That's the most important news. Yeah. That's the most important news. You go all the way against the prideful. Amen. But he does. You, you go against it. Uh, I mean, you're the community you come from and that I come from as well. Very prideful community. Mm. And you go totally against the grain as far as being expressive. How much feedback? Have you taken any criticism from, from those because yeah. you've been so expressive? Uh, yeah, a lot. Well, a whole lot. But I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. You know, huh? I buried my father. He was 51. Mm. That's, a, that's young. Mm-hmm. It's very young. And I remember just being at his funeral when he looked like me. He had a hair. He didn't have very much gray hair. I just remember thinking, like, wow, like, this ends. Yeah. Mm. This all ends. Boy. So what do I look like wasting my time? Mm-hmm. What do I look like caring about feedback? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't like me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sound like? You don't like me. Sound like you. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> do you know yeah. what I had to go through to be in this right. chair in this moment? You don't know. Right. So why should I care if you don't like me? I want to take another quick break and speaking of breaks I want to take, thank our sponsor Sleep Number who gives you the best break <laughs> of every single day of your life which is sleep mm. and what they're doing with their technology and their mattresses is second to none they have taken the mattress game and put it on steroids yeah. they check your heart rate your, your circadian rhythm they're doing all these different things to test you while you're sleeping to make sure that it's custom and that every single night is the most restorative, restful sleep that you're ever going to get. It's no accident that Sleep Number is the official sleep partner of the NFL. And because NFL athletes are at the top when it comes to recovery, when it comes to taking care of your body, and nothing is more important than sleep. We've talked about it on the show multiple times, making sure you take care of your sleep. And there's a reason that Dak Prescott sleeps on one every single Mm -hmm. night. And there's a reason that his career has blossomed the way that it has. So make sure either you go online, sleepnumber.com, you go into a local store, they're going to walk you through it. You're going to experience the entire process of understanding what your sleep score is or what your sleep number is. And then ultimately showing you how to achieve the highest sleep score uh, because that's what's important is how you actually sleep and how you recover so that you can tackle the day with everything that you have. It's the VIP experience that we're all looking for. That's right. Sleepnumber.com. Like Tyler said, go get yourself to a local store and get yourself that VIP experience. Now back to the episode. What does Sylvester care about? What is important to you? Yeah. 
I think it's important to contribute. I think that's important to contribute to, to a community. It's very important um, through your work, through your efforts, through your presence, through your love, through your attention. You know, you have to contribute. Uh, the world is set up for us when we get here. And a lot of people have sacrificed different things for us to be here. Everything that we do is privilege. To be able to have this podcast, to be able to sit here as men and talk is privilege. Like, there's people who die for us to be here. You know, there's people who had to walk miles and miles with no shoes for us to be here. You know, everything is privilege. And, and with that, there's, to me, a deep recognition and a, a respect of the relationship of everything that, you, that has been there for you. That's why I don't hold anything against my parents. You know, I don't know what they had to go through. I don't. I don't. I don't know what they had to go through. And um, I always want to respect, you know, my ancestors, you know, the people who came before me and who paved the way. Mm. You know, I think um, I care about that. I care about respecting the work that other people have done, you know, respecting the work of the elders, respecting you know, the work of the upperclassmen, a classman, you know, like when you come in, you're a freshman yeah. mm-hmm. and, you, you know, you see these senior football guys and you're like, wow, man, like, you know, these guys are amazing. Like, I always feel like you have to respect the people who came before you, you know, like as an author, like I have a voice as an author and, um, you know, I have to be careful, you know, and mindful how I feel like how I carry myself, you know, so I care, I care about that. Uh, I don't feel like I'm perfect. I make mistakes still. Um, you know, I care about compassion. I try to treat myself with self-compassion. A lot of people are very mean to themselves. They tell themselves what they can't do, who they can't be. Very judgmental, very critical. Um, and I, too, have a little bit of that. My father being in the Army, being a former, former athlete, you know, you're very, very, um, you grade yourself a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's not good for the human psyche. So I consistently try to remind myself, I have a yoga practice that I consistently do yoga. And I try to remind myself to be kind to myself, to mm-hmm. my body, to be kind to my heart, to my soul. You know, you know what I care about? Uh, I care about health. I care about holistic health. Mm-hmm. I don't like health conversations that are incomplete. I want the whole health conversation um, because health is wealth. Mm-hmm. Health is, the, is wealth, you know, and I, I want people, like one of my dreams and I don't know how to make it happen, but is to help people recognize that a lot of food we eat is bad. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fake. It's not real. It's not, it's not nutrient dense. And I want people to recognize what they're eating, right. you know, because your food, it goes right into the cells in your body. And I want people to, to, to eat well. And look, you know, I love cookies and cakes and I love all that mm-hmm. stuff too. I'm not about to come on here and say I'm a saint or, or I'm not doing that. Um, but I want people to have an understanding of what they're eating and what it's doing to them. And I want people to have boundaries. Yeah. And lastly, I would say that in this moment, I care about making sure that I don't restrict my son from who he is. You know, and that's something that I'm working with right now because he's a toddler. And toddlers, you know, they live off their impulses. <laughs> and so I find myself saying things like, Mason, Stop doing this it's like, mm. or get off me. Right. You know, he just wants yeah. to crawl all over me. I'm trying to work on the computer, you know. But then at the same time, I recognize he won't be this small forever. Mm. It's only a short time period mm-hmm. where he wants to be on me like this, right. where he, where he so wants true. to fight and, 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 and wrestle and just throw his body on me, you know. And he doesn't care if I'm asleep or if I'm napping or if I have work to do. He doesn't care. 
So I'm trying to lean into like the duality of okay, appreciate this time period of his life because he like this will never happen again oh, where he's man. this small. But then also at the same time, like how do I, quote unquote, get work done or do important things? Mm-hmm. Like how do I do that? So I'm I'm trying to navigate the balance, and I'm just trying to make sure that I don't um, crush him, you know, in sure. his yeah. In his development. Yeah, it's well, funny. I, I had that exact same revelation not long ago with my oldest son. I was sitting there, and he was playing little Toy Story toys, and, and the thought came in my head exactly what you said. He's never going to be this exact version of himself ever again. Yeah. So why do I keep putting my attention on all these things that don't matter? He is never going to be the same person ever again after this moment. Mm-hmm. And it just really, it really narrowed things down on what was important to me. Yeah. It sounds like the way that you're talking and you're a great communicator, it sounds like you control your day versus your day controlling you. I think that's my biggest problem. I feel like I'm playing defense all day long. I've never taken control of the day. I'm always backpedaling. But for you, it sounds like you set your boundaries and your standards and you make sure that you hit each one of those before anything else gets done. How do you do that? How do you make that a priority for yourself? One of my favorite songs is uh, Leonard Skinner, Simple Man. You know, I'm a simple guy. Mm-hmm. Like, I know exactly what I like. I know what bothered me bothers me. I know who bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, my distractions, I know exactly. As soon as I wake up, I know what's going to distract me that day. And so really what it is is I try to set my day up so I can do the mo- what's most important. For me, work is not most important. Mm. The most important part of my day is my daily walk in the morning and to get a workout in. Now, I don't work out every day, but I need to like four or five days a week, mm-hmm. you know, during the week, especially during the weekends. I kind of relax from that. And I hang out with the family. You know, we do the cartoons or go to the sure. mall. You know, I try to make sure it's always about the family. So really for me, and I'm sure you guys have heard the phrase, win the morning. I try mm-hmm. to win the morning. Mm-hmm. If I get that workout in, if I can get a walk in, I'm good to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm good to go. Then the rest of my day is easy to deal with especially with the business I work in, I work in a lot of project management type work, mm-hmm. writing a book is project management, mm-hmm. podcasting is project management. And so what I've learned is that you have to be compassionate with how you grade your day because you could work for six months and never finish anything. Right. right? But each day you're making a deposit, you know, or you're laying a brick or whatnot. So I've learned that really the personal part of my day is most important to the business part. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe for you is, uh, you know, another tactic I've seen, too. Uh, one of my friends in L.A., he does this. He breaks his day down uh, in four parts. So he goes from 6 to 10, 10 to 2, and 2 to 6, and then 6 to 10. And so, you know, like football, it's like a quarter. Yep. And so maybe that could work for you. Sure. Where you dedicate different parts of your day from like a quarterly basis. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. what you need to start doing is waking up earlier. Well, I think that's, I think that's true. Yeah. No, I, I think I do I do control until everybody else in the world is awake. I do control that part of my day. Mm-hmm. So from 4.30 to 7, whatever it is, I do feel like I have a good handle on that. But once that mm-hmm. 7.30 bell hits, the four-year-old wakes up, right, right. the rest of my day until he goes to bed or, or the two-year-old or, you know, everything just feels like I'm backpedaling. But I love <laughs> your – and trust me, these two are busier than I am. <laughs> what I love is your five minutes of writing, though. I th- I, for me personally, I'm going to take that home with me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that I because that. I think that could really be beneficial but You like to write, though. I do like – that's like what I'm journal. saying. That's why yeah. that resonates to me. Yeah. A question I had for you is, is you know, a young kid comes up to you, and, and we'll make this a personalized thing. A young sure. kid comes up to you, 
as opposed to being, you know, some general recommendation. Young kid comes up to you, had a rough, rough upbringing. And he says, hey, man, you know, I, I, my parents, life, life was tough with my parents. They were alcoholics. They were blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I'm not smart. I don't, I don't have the intelligence. I have all these things going mm. against me. How do you encourage that kid? What do you say to that young kid who thinks that everything in the world is set up for him to fail or, or for her to fail? Well, I would say investigate. If your mindset is things are set up for you to fail, investigate where that mindset came. Do you really believe that? I mean, you're allowed to believe that. You're also allowed to not believe that. You can believe in something different, but you have to investigate. I feel like it's all of our duties to investigate the mindsets that have been given to us because some of them have been given to us from our parents, from society, from a girlfriend, from a boyfriend, from church, from wherever you want to label it. It's our job. I'm responsible for my mindset. Mm. So it's our job to investigate. Why do you believe that? Why do you think that way? Where did it come from? Is this really your belief or is it your parents' belief? Mm. You know, I write about that in my book, Free Your Energy. Is I ask people to really investigate the mindsets that they choose because we choose our mindsets. Mm. We're choosing it. So what are you choosing? It's like, oh, well, life is set up for me to fail. Okay, well, if that's what you believe, mm. that's your reality. That's your personal reality. That's your personality. See how those words, personal reality, personality, that's your personality. You believe that things are set up for you to fail. I don't believe that way. I see the people who have sacrificed before me. I see people who have lost their lives. I see people who have literally given their life so I have an opportunity to get up and do what I love to do. I'm going to take that opportunity. I can't sit on that. I can't wait on that. Then I would tell them that I empathize with them and I understand. I know how hard it can be. I know the emotions that you deal with when you come from uh, an upbringing that's not perfect. But even the people that you think have the quote-unquote perfect upbringing, it wasn't perfect for them either. Yeah, it's true. They still had problems. And say you didn't have a lot of money, even the people who have money, they still have problems. So no matter what the demographic is, there's still something to overcome. But there's always love there. There's always love inside of you. There's always people that have been in your life, even when you're going through the worst moment, who have been there to look out for you, to help you, to guide you, to teach you, to give to you. So I feel like we have to, to keep fighting for those people too. You know, when I was going through the worst of the worst, you know, my friend Mike and his family looked out. You know, my aunties looked out. My grandmother always looked out for me. Even though my parents had their faults, they still tried to look out for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a, a teacher named Mrs. Smith. I would come in her, in, her, in her office, and she would look at me like, Sylvester, why are you here? There's too much inside of you. Mm-hmm. You're in trouble again for fighting? Come on. I need you to be better. I would get C's and D's, and she would say, You're lit- literally, I was, a, I was a gifted student. Mm-hmm. And she would say, C's and D's are beneath you. What are you doing? And I'll say, but Mr. Smith, it's because I'm, I'm going through this. I can't. I don't care what you're going through. Come on. You know, and so we have those mm-hmm. leaders and those guides and those coaches who bring us along. And they won't settle for our excuses. And so to me, I feel like we owe them. You got to at least try. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. That, what's, your, what's your opinion on that line between empathy and accountability? Where, where does that line stop? Because I, I do feel like from, from a society standpoint – accountability like if you if somebody holds you accountable to what you're capable of 
right? That's like, oh, no, 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 no. You, you don't have the right to do that. So it, you're, a, you're a, you know, a third party looking at somebody. Where is that line of, hey, look, I empathize. Like, I get it. It's hard. And then where is it okay, in your opinion, to hold that person accountable? You can't hold another person accountable. I can only hold myself accountable mm-hmm. to my standards and to my beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, good analogy, a good analogy of this is football. Mm-hmm. Let's, just, let's just keep it simple. All right, cover two. You play safety, right? right? Okay, so you're a safety. So we got two safeties. Both of those safeties have the same responsibility. I feel. And you – and I'm a corner. I play corner. Mm-hmm. So I have a responsibility. Okay, so let's just say we line up. Me and you are on the same side. Um, and we get two receivers to our side. Okay, I'm going to make sure I'm lined up on the outside receiver as a corner. My only job is to make sure this man doesn't get outside of me. Yep. Because if he gets outside of me, then he's going to be in that void, little touch pass, he can't get there in time. Mm-hmm. So I literally have to funnel my guy inside. This is my responsibility. This is my role, right? Linebacker supposed to funnel his guy inside. We're trying to keep everybody in the little vacuum in the space. So he can say to me all he wants, come on, Sly, be accountable. Do your job. Funnel the guy inside. Get a reroute. Do, right. Put your hands on Get in front of him. Something. Yeah, I'm yelling you, at you, too. You could say it to me a hundred times. <laughs> yeah. you, could, you could yell. You could grab my face mask. You mm-hmm. could tell coach to bring me out. But if I don't do it, I don't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't do it. So I don't believe that you can hold another person accountable. Mm-hmm. But what you can do is you can be in your spot. What you can do is you can say, oh, so you don't know how to do this? Let me teach you. Let mm-hmm. me show you. Let me help you. What can I do to help you succeed? Ultimately, I believe in nothing but personal responsibility. I feel like every person is responsible for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I don't try to hold anybody accountable. My friends, because honestly, if I try to hold people accountable, that type of pressure and fire, I don't think most people would survive nope. with. Absolutely. Because I'm going to hold you to what I'm holding Bro. myself to. Wow. And that's not fair. Yeah. Yep. Because that, people will let you down. If you hold, <laughs> you start setting expectations. And, and I think it's just... You know, I don't want to get spiritual about it, but there's only one perfect person. People will fail you, right? I mean, people are going to fail you. And I know from my lifetime, similar to yours, is, is that when you start to have, try to hold people accountable and expect them to do certain things, at some point, they're going to fail you. They're going to fail you. So what do I do? Same thing you just said. Rely on self. Like, I can hold myself accountable to be in the right spot. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think. I think the point of that, and this mm-hmm. isn't turned into a debate, the point of that was encourage accountability, not mm. necessarily hold accountable, oh, right? Because okay. I agree. I agree with you that it's like, look, it's not my job to make you do, unless you're a parent, right? right. It's like, it's not my job to make you do something. Uh, my job is to encourage and equip you Absolutely. to reach your potential. Absolutely. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And. But at the same time, there is a thing called an accountability partner, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But again, it's not holding, it's encouraging accountability, yep. Yep. right? So you've got, you've got the ability. I, I, it's, it's hard for any person, right, to be held accountable. Like mm-hmm. nobody likes to be called out for their shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to be called out for their mess-ups, mm-hmm. right? Although, although there is some beauty in that because yeah. – Sometimes we can't see our own mess ups, right? right? And sometimes we can't see that we're slipping or we're falling off, right? right. It's a slow, gradual fall. And that's where, mm-hmm. that's where friends, family, mm-hmm. a, accountability, mentors, whoever it may be. Right. Um, 
But I just, yeah. And that was my question. Because I think that, gonna tell you yeah. about your shit. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's right. right. But that's, yeah. a, that's such a tough, it's so tough, like, the way to navigate it. Because you really need to know two things. One, what do you really need in this moment? Mm-hmm. Like, if you're going to be my accountability partner, do I need the rah-rah speech? Yeah. Or do I just need a tap? Like, hey, come on. Yeah, like, yeah. Let's go. You're slipping. Mm-hmm. So, I feel like it's really about trying to figure out yourself, like knowing yourself, knowing how you like to be coached, you know, how you like to be held, how you like to be supported. Mm -hmm. And then also if you're, if you are on the other end and you are that accountability partner, Mm -hmm. recognizing that you can't coach everyone the same, you can't encourage everyone the same, you know, and, and really tailor tailoring your, your words and your language and your energy for that specific moment. Right. It's tough. It's tough to do. Yeah. And it takes trust, right? It takes relationship and it takes trust. Like you can't just be, and we we just met today, right? It would be really, it would be really unfair for me to ask you to hold me accountable, right? Because you don't know me. Like you don't know, we don't have that relationship. That would just be an impossible task. You'd be like, and I think you're, I think you're slipping up here, man. No, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. You know what I mean? That, that's unfair. Yeah. I just, it, it, I think where we get lost on the accountability, right? There's, it seems like there's two sides, right? It's over empathetic or over accountable. Mm, yeah. And, I see and, and then we've got the side that wants to tell everybody, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You should believe this. You should think this, you should act this way. You should do this, but there's no relationship, right? Yeah. And there's no trust. And I think that accountability, and you, you said it right, man, it's, it's encouraging accountability. It's not, it's not telling and holding accountable. No, I got Sorry, a buddy. That was kind of a tangent. No, I got a best friend. Me? And I'll call him now, not you. Oh. Uh, and I'll, I'll call him out. <laughs> Definitely not you. <laughs> and I will call him out same way. His name's Floyd, right? Best friend, right? Best man in my wedding. He is a true accountability partner. Mm. Like, I've, there's a trust because I've known him for so long. I know his dirt. He knows my dirt, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right. There's something that Floyd can say things to me that no one else can say. For sure. And it's like, okay, I know I'm fucking up. I know I fucked up and he, he holds me accountable. But then other people, sort of similar to what you're saying, other people may say things and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I, don't need, I don't look at you as an accountability partner because we haven't built that relationship to do so. Yeah, yeah that's sure. that's why social media is so fascinating to me, and, and the arguments that go, cause. And, and, and you know, you, oh. you talk about you do a good job of you know shutting out that noise. But for whatever reason, we have in our head that we have to hash this out online when we have what no relationship. Argument on social media has ever right. convinced the other side that they're wrong ever. Right, like there's I, in the history of social media, there has never been a debate in the comment section where someone's like. <laughs> You know what? You're correct. That's a good point. <laughs> good job. You're correct, Richard. Richard and, and Wyoming. You know what I mean? And again, that's the lack of relationship, right? Yeah. Is is there's people yeah, whole, this social media platform feels like everybody feels like they've got a voice and and they've got to say this and they gotta say this and hold accountability. Like there's beauty in social media, right? We can share things with more people. We can share words, we can share love, we can share I mean, there's all these things that we can share on on social media. But now we've taken it as a, mm, this is my world, <laughs> yeah. and you yeah. other 50 billion people could just live in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's unfortunately, like, it's, it's, it, it encourages the opposite of what it's capable of mm-hmm. producing. Yeah. Uh. Well, that's in the bright side of it, like, like Tyler's talking about, this conversation right here. If I didn't know your story and your background, you start all, all of a sudden telling me it's about, you know, I have the power and, and, and I'm, I'm personally accountable. You don't know me. You don't know my story. But now I hear your story. Now I know where you come from. And I, yeah, he does yeah. get it. Yeah. 
He know he he's been there before. He's been to where yeah. I have before. So he does have merit then. That's why I love podcasting because you know we talked about the vessel. Like this is a safe vessel because the vessel holds space for conversation. Mm. And so we don't have to agree. We don't have to be mm. right. We can just have a conversation. That's right. But the vessel of social media itself is so confined and so constricted that there is no space to hear the nuance of what your opinion is or right. what you think. Mm. Right. It's not set up like that. So honestly, boundaries. <laughs> like yeah. You got to have boundaries yeah, and just right. recognize that, hey, it's kind of like if you're texting your wife about an argument. Was the no. text message the best field to be right. doing this in? Right. No, no, it's not. It's right. us sitting down together right. and, and holding space for each other. Uh, what are you supposed to do in a conflict with your wife? Hold her hands. Don't hold you her hands and hold. look in her eyes. Hold both hands, look in her I eyes. Thought was, I, I thought it was this. hold her face. <laughs> you gotta, he gave us this advice. I thought it was hold her hold face. Her, hold her hands. Hold her face. Hold her face to you. Faces if she starts to pull away. Then yeah. you grab you her face. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Then I got a cop calling. Maybe I've been knocking on the door. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler got this great idea about holding your spouse's hand and, it is a great and idea. talking to her. Darren tried, tried it. It's a great idea. Stuff. Darren unless, got slapped unless, upside the head. It's a great <laughs> idea, unless you marry an Italian. <laughs> You've been around Tyler too. <laughs> uh, so where do you go next, man? What 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 does life look like for you in the future? What are your goals? I mean, do we got twenty more books in you? What, what what's life look like going forward? Oh wow, that's a that's a big question. Um, and while you think, sorry, another thing I love about you is yeah. that you pause and reflect before you answer. <laughs> we don't do that enough. <laughs> I, I want to commend you for that. Yeah, that yeah. You, You've done that three or four times now where you've paused, taken a moment. Aside. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I think a lot of the times people have, like, automated, automated responses, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I try not to give that. I try to make sure I'm genuine. Mm-hmm. I try to tap into what I feel in love that moment. That. You mean you don't just like to fill space? <laughs> yeah, you know, I need, I, need, I need to be intentional with, <laughs> yeah. you know, how I move. Love so I love that. Um. I would say health, man. Just really focusing on my health would be priority number one. Because like I said, you know, I buried my dad. He was very young. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like living. I right. like being alive. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, I don't want my son to be saying the same thing. Sure. You know, so I would like to live uh, long enough and uh, to have a good quality of life. To be able to uh, do some things with my son and, 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 you know, play and wrestle and all that stuff, yeah. you know, be able to see him go to prom and all that stuff. I really want to watch him live his life, you know, see his kids come in. Yeah. So I think health is the biggest, the biggest thing for me. Um, professionally, you know, making sure I'm aligned with where I'm spending my time, you know, making sure that I'm not just doing something for money, um, you know, making sure that my, my motivation for what I'm choosing, you know, really aligns with me, you know, really aligns with like my core, really brings something out of me. I think that's important. I don't want to just take a job just cause it's cause it's a bag, you mm-hmm. know, this is a big mm-hmm. bag. Like, no, nah, cause I've done that. I've done that. And it's like, yeah, the, the money is great. But then that, that feeling of not feeling fulfilled, I need that. Yep. I need to feel like I'm fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say probably just those two things, you know, staying aligned uh, taking care of my health would probably be. See, that's great. I love that, man. I love that your goal is it to me. Hearing hearing you explain your goal, it feels it feels light, right? It, it not like to to minimize the the value of it, but mm-hmm. it feels lighter because if I'm aligned with with what my purpose is, what what I was created to do, those other tangible goals like oh, whatever. 
it's so hard, right? Like right. that's such so cliche these days. Hey, don't worry about making money. If you do what you love every day, you're going to make mm-hmm. money. Sounds good, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds good, but I've got a son that I've got to, you know, provide for. Right. I've got I've got family that I've got to take care of. Mm-hmm. But to hear you speak about your ultimate goal is look, being healthy and being aligned with what you were created to do, man. That's powerful. That's right. great. Right. What about your son? How are you going to what what are your hopes for him? How are you going to encourage him as he grows up? You know, well, I feel like one of the best things for me is that I got to, I got to, I feel like live my dreams. You know, I got to play the sport that I wanted to play at a high level, got to do a career that I like, multiple careers actually, you know, at a high level. And so I'm not a dad where I have to like live through my kid to try to fulfill anything. Mm-hmm. I'm very content with where I am. I don't know, wait till seven year old flag football. <laughs> <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> yeah, he hadn't started T ball yet. <laughs> Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to sit back and just see what he needs. You know, I did it. I did everything I needed to do. So I don't mm-hmm. have to live through him. Yeah. That's good. So really, I just, just want to sit back and figure out how to support him. You yeah. know, support him on his journey. Yeah. That's great. Love it. You'll give it to him. You got anything else, D, over there? No. Give it to him. You all out? Give him the uh, last one. Hold on. Tyler, hold, on hold on. Hold on. Before we, else, we, 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 we going to do ways to find him after or are we doing it before? Let's do that before. Okay. Good, good yeah, point. Right. How can people find you? Sylvester McNutt the third, yeah, Sly. You, you type that name, man, you'll find me. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I have a podcast, Free Your Energy mm-hmm. Podcast. Uh, my books. What are do you? All, what do y'all do on that podcast? Just, just to give the people a little highlight. Yeah, so um, it's, it's kind of like a hybrid. Uh, I do some solo episodes where I just jam on a, a particular topic. Uh, but what I'm really interested in is uh, doing guest, guest interviews, mm-hmm. and, and interviewing people essentially, and yeah. just asking them. Uh, I bring a lot of authors on. Mm-hmm. Being an author, it's easy to book yeah, other authors. Right. Sure, yeah. you know. You know, people want to get their name out there. So bring a lot of authors on and, you know, just ask questions. Yeah. Just I'm a very curious person. So yeah. I try to use the, the platform to, like, explore different conversations. And, you know, for me, it's not about being right. I don't have a, a specific narrative I'm pushing. No. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, I'm a very curious person. So I just bring people on and That's ask great. questions. Love that. That's man. awesome. Love that. So you got your Instagram. You got your YouTube channel. Yep. Uh, website. Website. You're a speaker as well. Can people book you for speaking? Yeah, I just I, mean, I just got done. Uh, I just did this um, keynote for uh, this company called Real Love Ready, and it was all about relationships. It was really cool um, to do. So it was a keynote. It was all about relationships. So I'm out there. You type yep. my name in. You can yep. find me. Google it's it. Yeah, it's easy. It's easy. Love it. Anything else, Ty? My brain. No. All right. Yeah, Last okay. question. We ask every guest this. Okay. If you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself, one thing doesn't necessarily mean you go change anything, but if you just go back and tell yourself one thing, <laughs> where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Okay, so the butterfly effect, right? You change this mm-hmm. one thing, yeah, change your whole life, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, the easy answer is, Oh, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't know this, and <laughs> you know, that's that's what people usually say. Well, and that's why we caveat, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's why we caveat. Just tell yourself, yeah, one thing. like, yeah. like Sylvester at 35. 36 now. 36. Oh, yep. okay, that's right. 36 goes back to and and I'm going to I'm going to preface this. Mm-hmm. Goes back to those steps at your high school yeah, at 17. Yeah. yeah. There you go. That's a good what one. do you what do you yeah. say to yourself? Just tell him. Man. Probably I would probably just tell that guy you'll be all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's probably it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you'll be all right. Yeah. You know, he probably wouldn't want to hear that at yeah. the moment, <laughs> right. yeah. but 
You're supposed to come back and tell me where I can go buy yeah. some food yeah. and a nice place to stay. Explain what this Bitcoin thing is to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, if I could tell them what, what teams to bet on. Right. You know, right. Like, hey, you know, 2014. You yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, that would be helpful. Um, probably I'll give you a little more complex answer, though. I think um, when I was leaving, when I was leaving Verizon, I was also leaving a toxic relationship. And I had a lot of uh, uncertainty. I wasn't sure. Like, I... I knew it was going to work out, but I didn't really know, you know, because you, you, you don't really know. And um, I think I would just go tell that person to just be confident, trust what you're doing, um, and it's okay if it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Because I sit in front of you, and it did work out. Things went well, but I would, I would tell that guy, even if it didn't work out, yeah. it's, yeah, okay. it's okay, you know, because you know, cause that would be a failure. You failed. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. It's okay to fail because mm-hmm. – to me, success is trying, you know, and, and I would say, hey, you try. You gave it your best, and, and you should have closure knowing you gave it your best, and it's okay. Maybe you didn't become a best-selling author, but that doesn't take anything away from you as a man. Like, you're still a good person, and you did it, so. That's uh, good. Love it. Yeah. Love it, man. Sly, man, we appreciate you flying in for this because, you know, we talked yeah. about it earlier. Zoom is great. It's great that we're all connected that way, but it's just it just hits different. When you're in the room with each other, man, we appreciate you so much man, for coming down here. That was doing beautiful, this. bro. Yeah, it really was, man. Yeah. Love it, man. Yeah. Love your message. I just, I'm excited, man, to see the continued impact you talked about uh, contributing, right? Yeah. The continued impact you're going to make uh, on those that maybe had similar upbringings, but just everybody, man. Your perspective is 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 on point. Your perspective is true. It's authentic. Man, I'm excited for you. So Thank anything you. we can do to help, man, we're, we're here, man. We're a resource for you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. Appreciate you guys.